Hello, and welcome to Dare to Know, interviews with quality and reliability thought leaders. I'm Tim Rogers, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Andy Drenick. Andy is the CEO and President of Qualmar Corporation, which is the global leader in highly accelerated product testing services and systems. Andy has over 20 years of experience as a design engineer, operations manager, and executive. He holds a BS in engineering from the Colorado School of Mines and an MBA from Stanford University. Andy, welcome, and th thanks for joining us. Thanks, Fred. It's uh, good to be here. Tim. Oh, God, sorry. That's <laughs> okay. Andy, you've taken a strong position about the need for CEOs and other senior leaders to care more about warranty costs and product defects. Why should they be more involved? It's a good question, Tim. I think there's a, a number of reasons. The first reason is just the sheer scope of the problem. Just in the U.S., in publicly traded companies, it's a $25 billion problem. That's B as in billion. And this, wow. uh, this slide is from Eric Arnhem. And I would point out that this is publicly traded companies only. So this, um, if you consider privately, com privately held companies and even worldwide, it's uh, conceivable that it's more than $100 billion being spent on warranty. That's amazing. So that's, yeah, that's, that's the first reason. The second reason that I believe a CEO needs to be um, involved in this is that uh, they're really the only person who oversees all the different departments that have a role in warranty. We tend to think of product reliability being an issue in, in, in engineering and operations, and while that's true, there's also a role for sales and marketing and post-sale support. So without the CEO being involved, um, it's difficult to get all these departments together. Yeah, it really and only the, meets up at the top, doesn't it? Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, the third reason that it's uh, uh, important is the impact on brand loyalty. Now, in this slide, um, it's easiest to find this sort of data for automotive industries, automotive cars, because they have a, a large prevalence of recalls. And you can see that after a product recall, the the uh, value of the brand has been adversely impacted. So uh, brand loyalty and impact on brand may be larger than even the financial uh, costs associated with warranty excursions. Andy, that's a really good point. I mean, it's not just the direct spending to address the warranty issue, but it's there's a long-term impact to future revenue and sales. Exactly right. You know, Andy, recalls and other major quality issues certainly get everyone's attention after the fact. What can organizations do to proactively avoid these crises? I believe there's a number of things uh, that can be done to proactively uh, address the issue of recalls and warranty expense in, uh, in the broader context. Uh, if we first look at, at how products are developed, what I would say is you can change when you test new products, and you can also change how you test new products. Mm. So what's shown is a conventional uh, product development process. There's a lot of varieties of this, but, but basically um, engineering, uh, if I can get the pointer up here. Uh, engineering is responsible for doing the hardware, software, industrial design, and the like. And usually there's a design verification test or some sort of a step test 
before the product is determined to meet requirements and it pushes over into operations and then ultimately into sales. So the, the first step that, uh, that can be utilized to improve the reliability of products and therefore decrease the warranty costs is to use accelerated testing before design verification testing. This is before the product really leaves engineering and it gives you that opportunity to make changes before you go through DVT. I mean, um, Tim, I don't know if you've been involved in uh, actual DVT, but, but what, in my experience what happens is by the time engineering gets done with the product and it gets over to the uh, reliability group doing the testing, there's a big impediment to sending the product back to engineering because uh, plans have been made, uh, the product's pretty much finalized, and people want to move on and start building it and selling it. So it's a tough time to, to go back and improve the design, whereas if you can use accelerated testing before you go to DVT, uh, you can make those changes more uh, cost-effectively. And that's, that's shown in this uh, slide here. Uh, this is from uh, Rico, the copier and maker. And you can see in this particular instance, uh, making a change in the design phase is relatively inexpensive. But if you let that product go until uh, it's at the customer side and you have to uh, bring the product back and deal with customer issues, it, it can multiply very quickly. Um, there's also another quote in the, uh, from uh, Space Systems Oral about the uh, value of accelerated life testing on, on new units. Yeah, Andy, I think there's no doubt that early testing, early defect detection uh, has a huge impact uh, on the overall cost of development and, and cost of quality. You know, Andy, some organizations have designated a senior level person as a chief reliability officer, some similar title. Can, can you, have you seen that and, and can you explain how that might be effective? Certainly. Um, well, let's see. First off, the, the role of the, the chief reliability officer, or sometimes there's other designations or titles, um, is to be positioned to have authority and organizational responsibility to impact the um, design and the operations group to uh, address uh, warranty costs. Um, and this person can be um, well situated to uh, influence engineering work, uh, assign resources, um, discuss priorities, and the like, and it can have a dramatic impact on the uh, overall performance of the organization. Just one uh, example here, um, one example here uh, at, at HP, for example, where they um, installed a chief reliability officer, I believe it had a slightly different title um, at HP several years ago. And you can see the impact of the um, expense, warranty expense over time. It's, it's made a rather dramatic change. And if you look at, um, just drawing some lines on here, if you pick um, kind of a, a, a midpoint of the uh, warranty cost 10 years ago, you can see that uh, compared to what they've done today, they're saving about $4 billion. And there's a lot of different ways to calculate this, but I think the number speaks for itself that um, there's been a dramatic impact on the positive side of um, work at HP. A similar example, and I don't know if this is directly related to uh, having a chief reliability officer or other 
uh, influences. This is two pair companies, uh, General Dynamics and uh, Raytheon. And you can see that uh, back in 2002, they had very similar uh, warranty expenses. And yet General Dynamics have grown over time. Raytheon's have decreased. And you can see that uh, they've ended up with a rather dramatically different uh, expense here um, back in 2011. So these are ways that um, uh, having a chief reliability officer uh, can deliver real dollars to your bottom line. Andy, what are some of the things that a chief reliability officer can do? I'm, obviously, they're at a pretty high level in the organization, but, but what are some of the specific tactics or activities that a, a chief reliability officer can apply in order to get these kinds of results? Sure, yes. Um, well, I think one of the things that uh, we see most often is people have not um, updated their testing suites. So products have changed rather dramatically in the last 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and as this slide shows, we've gone from you know, landline telephones to uh, portable computers that we call phones. And yet the testing scheme is pretty much uh, the same. So uh, we believe that uh, changing how and when new products are tested can improve reliability and therefore reduce warranty costs. You know, my sense is that reliability testing methods change at, at glacial speeds and, um, and products are changing rather rapidly, as we know. And, and the other point shown on the slide is something I've observed um, and wondering if you have the same viewpoint that reliability tests are, are like laws passed, and that is that hmm. the old ones stay on the books, the old tests stay on the books, people still test all the previous ways that they did, and new ones are added on top of it, but the older methods are never, um, never removed, so you end up with um, using antiquated test equipment because it's in test methods because it's so hard to get new ones uh, budgeted and implemented. Yet it seems to me that that people are stuck in the past too much, and they really got to think about um, um, obsoleting and and stopping some of the tests from the the 80s and 90s and focus those resources instead on on newer te testing techniques. I don't know how you feel about that. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense, Andy. We're, we, uh, unfortunately, with new products, we seem to rely on consumers to do the testing for us uh, to figure out what the failure modes are. Uh, and, and instead of trying to do some fundamental science or research to understand that for ourselves, uh, and I think you're right. I think we do rely on old test techniques that are more applicable to a different generation of products. Yeah, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, yeah. we, we, we think about it in sort of three different product categories. You have the consumer products. You have uh, what we would think of as enterprise products that go into the office mm -hmm. environment. And then you have industrial products sure. or avionics. And it, it, strangely enough, it seems like the folks in avionics and, and oil field um, and even medical sort of the areas where you have industrial-type products or, or, or non-commercial uh, products, if you will, or non-consumer products, they're a lot more advanced in their testing techniques, and the consumer guys seem to be um, seem to be behind. So it seems like testing technologies are are um, uh, paradoxical when you think about uh, consumer products. At least that's our my take on it. Do you think that's because the risk is considered to be lower for consumer products if there's a 
failure in a consumer product, it's the impact is relatively small compared to something in avionics. Do you think that has something to do with it, Andy? Well, I, I don't know. Um, because if you think about one of the grandest consumer failures in, in recent times, that was the Microsoft Xbox. That ended up costing $1.5 billion and a dramatic adverse impact on how Microsoft hardware was viewed. So um, granted, it's not perhaps as dramatic as having a failure in an airplane or something, but there you have redundancy built in and same for industrial products. So it's it's um, a bit of a surprise to me. I think it's I think it's more about um, habits and um, the the life cycle than anything else. So, you know, one of the things that, that I mentioned here is we test change both how and when new products are are tested. Um, how they're tested, you know, to migrate from straight vibration to a uh, combined testing environment where you're doing multi-directional vibration while you're doing thermal changes, you know, allows you to test. Uh, 21st century products with 21st century testing technologies and this this combined environment uh, has been shown to be more effective at finding weak links that uh, that can be driven out of the products in a cost-effective manner and also I'd note that there's a lot more software tools now available uh, that work directly with design files that are doing a good job a better and better job at actually predicting weak links rather than just just predict the reliability and come up with a number that people can use in their warranty reserve. It can actually import design files, um, run thermal shocks and thermal gradients and uh, vibration even, and, and a bit of simulate sort of a combined environment um, to find the weak links in the product uh, without having to physically test them. If you combine a physical test with some of these software tools, you can really get 21st century um, testing techniques. You know, Andy, it seems like this is a great marriage of ad advances in our understanding of failure modes and the feedback that we get from actual uh, failures that occur in the field. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you do need to look for correlation. What, what we find in, in our testing is that somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of the failure modes that are induced in, uh, in highly accelerated testing uh, this combined environment of vibration, multi-directional vibration, along with uh, thermal cycling, uh, 60 to 80 percent of the failure modes found via this testing end up correlating with ultimate field returns. So there are 20 to 30 percent uh, failure modes that uh, do not have a strong correlation. The, the challenge is to figure out, of course, which ones which ones may, and, and sometimes customers will decide to fix the ones that are easy and watch the ones that aren't so that they can gain some field experience and figure out which ones are, are going to occur. Interesting. You know, Andy, you make a real good point about how businesses need to make sure that engineering, uh, production, and delivery teams really integrate quality into their work. But there's just a huge impact to the bottom line. How can businesses make sure that that integration is taking place? Well, that's a really good question, and I think it's one of the bigger uh, challenges in um, in uh, management. Um, if you consider the forces that are at work in an organizational structure, you know you've got really forces coming down on the president and CEO that's that's focused on the financial performance of the business. That generally um, follows and puts pressure on sales and marketing to to sell more. Sales and marketing, of course, want some help from engineering, so they want uh, new products to um, to be developed so that they can sell them. And that, of course, then 
uh, puts pressure on operations to build them. So you have this this cycle um, you see often, and I experienced myself when I was the CEO at, uh, at a wireless business. And the problem is that you just do not force any attention uh, or resources on reliability. And mm -hmm. so that's the that's you know the key to sort of break this uh, um, progression that we see a lot is that you've really got to get uh, progressive, what I call C-level uh, involvement. I don't know whether it's the CEO or in the case of HP, it's a, it's, it's a director level that's reporting high up in the organization and has visibility to the various departments. But you really need this, the, the CEO and the C-level folks to get down on, to get on board with it. Um, ideally, management shines the light on the problems and, and brings a plan for improving it, and then you get C-level uh, endorsement with ideally a multi-year mandate. Sometimes these things take time depending upon your product life cycle. And the goal then is to create an effective cross-functional team. And certainly you need your technical resources. Um, in my experience, the, the technical members that are going to be at, best at reducing warranty are those that are passionate and believe that we can do better than we've done and have a broad technology and organizational skills. So they're not just firmware people, they're not just WVs, they're, they're people that have a broad sense of the various um, disciplines that go into a good product and a good operating product. Certainly you need your CRO or, or a reliability team member to lead the group and, and be intimately involved. And, and a big piece that, that I think is that you need financial analysis um, so that you can figure out where to best spend your money. So these are the, the folks that I think are um, important for, um, for making a, a difference in these teams. You know, Andy, it also seems like you need a little bit of patience. Uh, um, these uh, warranty improvement efforts can take some time. And you may have uh, products, uh, and it takes a while for the improved products to get into the pipeline. That's right. That's right, it does. Um, it's, uh, it really depends upon the type of products that you have. We talked earlier about it being um, an industrial product versus a consumer product. And uh, depending upon your product life cycle, it can take quite a while to, uh, certainly quarters and in some cases years, before you're seeing the, um, the, the reduction in warranty costs that you, that you seek. If you go back to the HP slide, you can see that for a number of years they were relatively flat. Um, mm -hmm. while they were making uh, efforts at trying to improve it. I mean, uh, I have to believe, just based on my informal conversations with folks over there, that they were aware of the, the challenge. And it took, uh, that's kind of the, the lag time between recognizing the problem and implementing something in a way that has uh, a measurable impact on warranty expense. Andy, despite our best efforts, uh, field failures do still occur. Uh, what can organizations do to minimize the impact to the bottom line? Well, that's that's a good question, and uh, I think a lot of different leaders and a lot of different companies address that differently. This I've unfortunately been involved in a number of product recalls and defects, and here's here's what I've learned from my experience that the first piece is that you you've got to convene a crisis team. And in the first warranty excursion that I was um, leading, um, we did not have a crisis team in existence, and we had to pull people together 
uh, in the midst of the crises. And so second time we went there, we had we knew who the people were and, and who for. So I'd suggest that you figure out if we're going to have, in case we have a um, warranty excursion, who are the people that are most likely to help us? Um, and if you go back to the earlier slides, it's, it's really this cross-functional capability where you need uh, the folks and uh, customer-facing folks and operations and maintenance. In that particular situation, I get the financial folks out of it. But what tends to happen is that people think about cost considerations first. And to my mind, what they need to think about first is customer retention. If, if wow. your initial actions are not positive from a customer perspective, you run the risk of losing the customer, which is um, the worst outcome. Um, having a warranty excursion is expensive. Uh, it will cost money, but you can recover from it. If you lose your customers, that can be a problem that you can't can, uh, recover from. So first off, to me, you need to think about customer retention, then your cost considerations, and then your, your outbound and um, messaging and your active efforts. Um, once you get through the crises, then the thing that from that episode and consider some of the suggestions from this interview and some of the suggestions from what you've learned in your, your first crises as you move forward. You know, Andy, I think you make a, another really great point there that uh, there's a tendency for companies to try to sweep this stuff under the rug and try to pretend that it never happened. And I think customers are pretty savvy about that. And what they're looking for is uh, a, a more uh, well thought out plan. Absolutely. You know, you think about companies that have tried to deny problems and, and it just escalates, particularly in this world of social media. And the, the companies that um, admit uh, that they could have done better right up front and that here's what they're going to do to take care of their customers are far, far better off. Um, one of the excursions we had in a wireless business I was running, um, we ended up having a product recall and, and the product was installed in uh, thousands of facilities throughout the U.S. And uh, we basically took all the customer-facing folks, all the sales folks, all the customer support folks, all the technicians, et cetera. And for a couple of weeks, they didn't do anything other than call customers and travel to customers and work with customers to, to get through the problem, in addition to um, replacing all the product, no questions asked, and, and other financial support. And uh, we came through it. We came through it even stronger. It was a huge hit to uh, that quarter because we weren't selling, we were fixing. Uh, but the customer retention and the customer loyalty that we had over uh, turned a bad situation into something that, that created a more loyal customer base. In this case, we were, we were using resellers, and those resellers thought, boy, you know, every company's going to have problems, but uh, this company stood behind their product, helped us out, and, and it uh, actually improved our our customer retention and our revenue going forward. So it's uh, it's that uh, old definition of crises. You know, crises um, is a problem that uh, that it creates an opportunity. That's a great story, Andy. Thanks so much for your insights today. That's been a pleasure. That was Andy Drenick, CEO and President of Qualmark. For more information about Qualmark and their accelerated reliability testing systems, visit qualmark.com. This is Tim Rogers. Thanks for joining us.